is what does the heart look like? Whereas God's power flows through, right? What is the heart that God delights to work with? And so let's kind of dive in. I'm going to read some. This is a long passage. I'm going to read some, summarize some, so y'all just kind of stick with me as I'm going through. I'll stop occasionally and let's point out some things that God's Word is saying, okay? So what is a God, what, what, what is the heart, and what kind of hearts does God delight to work with? Let's start in verse 8 of chapter 4. Since one day, Elisha went to Shuman, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in and eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof of the walls and put a bed for him, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, you can go in there. Point number one that I want you to, to gather. We cannot make God move in our lives, but we can make room for him. We can't make God move in our lives, but we can make room for him to move. This is a decision, this small decision to make a room for the house, or to make a room for the man of God, is going to be instrumental for the rest of this story. It's not like God, when we make room for him in our lives, is obligated to bless us or is obligated to, to move his power through us. It just means, it just means that whatever we make room for, we can be ready for it. Ready for it. There is nothing that you and I can do to make God in our lives. But I, I, I remember, remember in John chapter 3, the whole day and night scene from Nicodemus, you know, John 3, 16, that whole episode. What we see in that is Jesus is talking about the movement of God is kind of like the wind, right? The wind. We, we understand that in West Texas. We don't know where it comes from. It's always here, right? We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it is going. God says that the, the power of God is kind of like that. You see, there's no magic formula to make God bless us. There's no magic formula to make God bless this church. There's no magic formula to make God bless your family. But we can make room for God. And so uh, to follow this analogy of wind, it's kind of like you can't make uh, a sailboat um, move uh, because you need wind, right? But if you can't blow the sail, you can't blow the sail. It's not for God to blow the wind, but it's up for us. Up the cell. So let me give us some examples of kind of what I'm talking about here. And so, whenever I was uh, a little kid, I actually wrote this on my seminary like uh, uh, entry level thing, and my wife was really mad at me. I said I had a major drug problem whenever I was in elementary school, and that drug problem was that my parents drug me to church three times a week. Now, here's the question. 
did going to church and memorize Bible verses and being there every time the doors were open, did that make me love God? No. No. In fact, as I grew up in my teenage years, I began to resent the fact that I was constantly drunk here against my will. But you know what it did? You know what it did? Is that the moment that God's Spirit began to move into my life and He saved me, I was so thankful for my drug problem. So thankful for it because all of those uh, Bible verses that I memorized, all those times I sat and just listened to another sermon and another sermon and another sermon, the truths of God came alive in an instant whenever the wind of God moved into my life. Right? So we can't make God move in our life, but whatever He does, we need to make sure that we've made room for Him. And that's how faith works. That's how faith works. We can't manipulate the presence of God, but you just have to make room for Him. You've got to put up the sail. You gotta flip the sails. So I don't know what that looks like for you here in Tampa. I don't know what it looks like for your family. But I know, I know you have to make room for God to move in your life. Because God is constantly talking about this all throughout scripture. So I'm gonna summarize some more of the story. Uh, kind of verse 11 goes as follows. Elisha is saying uh, in the room, and Gehazi, his assistant, says, you know, this woman has been very kind to us. She's blessed us tremendously. What can we do to repay her? And so they make a couple suggestions. And they're like, ah, oh, it doesn't work. Because remember, um, it said that she was very wealthy. Now, this word wealthy in Hebrew is this word good goal. Good goal. And so wealthy maybe doesn't capture it as well uh, in English. It means, uh, it means very rich, powerful. Um, she, she is a person that has no need that she is respected by outsiders, okay? And so this woman is someone that everyone would look up to. Very, she, had, she has all of her earthly needs met. And so in all of her goodness, she was good except for one thing. And Gahazi points it out. She says she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a son. And as you've gone through the book of Exodus, I'm sure you've understood that the economy of the Israelites was based primarily on passing down the inheritance of God from generation to generation. And, if, and with, with that reality of the economy, when we didn't have a son, it was basically a death sentence to everything that you owned. Because there was no one to bury you in your old age. There's no one to pass down all the things you worked work for in your entire life. It would go to another family because that's how the system worked. That's how the system worked. And so she, um, she was very rich, very well-to-do, but she didn't have this one thing that was very, very dear and precious to us. It's curious, isn't it, that God seems to work most in our lives through the deepest weakness that we have. You know what I'm That God wants to work in your life where you feel inadequate, where you feel weak, where you feel like you can't make it. That's when God's power really was suppressing the problem. We'll come back to that in a little bit. I'm going to just show you a quick shadow of that. But it's interesting. This woman, who doesn't have a son, which is a major thing, seems content. But Elijah says, on his own, this time next year, guess what's going to happen? God will give you a son. Verse 16, if you're going to follow along, my silver age goes, hey, don't you mess with me on this. Don't mess with me. Hey, hey, don't, don't say this because this is something that I was very touched by her. This was a dream that she had given up on. 
She had realized that, hey, my, my childbearing years have passed. This is something that I want. I've had everything in the world. I've been very, very rich, but I don't have a son. And she says, please don't tease me about this. And Elisha's like, I'm not. I'm not. It's going to happen. And sure enough, and here it is all. She had a little baby with her old husband. Well, the child had grown, and he had sent out with his father among the reapers. And verse 19, we going to read this. He says this. And he said to the father, his, his, the child that is, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then the child died. And he went up, and she went up, and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the bowl behind him, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send to me a servant from the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and then come back again. Verse 23. And he said to her, Why? Why would you go to him? This is even your little Sabbath. She said, All is well. All is well. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw him coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, here comes the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, say to her, it is all well with you, it's all well with your husband, it's all well with your child. It's all well with your child. And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain of the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came and pushed her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in better distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? I didn't, right? Did I say, Do not deceive me? You must be still, right? That's a smoke. He said to Gehazi, Tie up my garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, but lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child, the dead child, said, As the Lord this, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. She, and, and he arose and followed her. Gehazi went ahead of them, laid his staff, did exactly what he was supposed to do, and then he came back and said, the child has not awakened. By the way, um, for, for the skeptics in the room, um, I needed to hear this as a, as a teenager, because I was a huge skeptic. You want to know why I know that the Bible is true? And it's not just a collection of myths. Want to know how I know this? Because right here, Elisha kind of looks foolish, doesn't he? Elisha is confident that God is going to take care of uh, a woman's child, right? Very, very confident. So he just says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to let my, uh, my assistant, Gehazi, you go take care of this. Take my staff. You know, I give you my authority. God is going to raise this boy up. He's going to raise this boy up. I don't want to do that. Because did that work? No. Was Elisha wrong? Was he losing his God powers? What was going on? Was, did God cease to start working through him? See, what happens in the midst of old, whenever you see a, uh, a, a hero of sorts, a man of God in other religions, they never make him out to be a fool. They always say, look how moral, look how just, look how perfect this man is. If you could just be more like Muhammad, if you could just be more like this prophet of old, then God will bless you and God will serve you. But that's not how the Bible's written. 
The Bible was written, look, hey, I did exactly what you said to do. I put the staff, I don't know what to think of, I put it on his face, maybe because Moses had a great staff, and he could do all, uh, all sorts of things. And I put it on the child's face, and guess what? He still lay dead. He did all, all these things. The man of God wasn't able to, to do anything. And so, guess what? Uh, here, we're going to read this just a little bit, but there's another detail in the story that really almost makes you laugh, but I'm trying to figure out the significance. Seven seems to be a, a very significant number. But it says in verse uh, 35, it says, uh, Elijah raised the child, and the child sneezed seven times. Is that because God wanted you to say bless you seven times? I don't think so. Um, I have no idea why that's in there. But, but, we can see that that's just one of the reasons why I think this word is true. Because it happened. If someone sneezes seven times in a row right before they're raised from the dead, you just write that down. Alright? You just write it down. That is seven sneezes. Alright? That's what happened. And so this isn't a myth. This is just the word of God and the word of God. And you see how the Bible is written. It's not trying to exalt Elisha. It's trying to exalt God that is going to do and that is the whole point of Scripture. So let's finish up real fast. And so, verse 34, he says, Elisha decides, puts his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and lays out stretched over him. His, in the flesh of the child became more. Verse 35, then he got up again and walked once back and forth from the house, which I figured it out, and went up and stretched himself upon him again. And the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call his children. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came, fell out of sleep, down to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. What's the next thing that we see from this passage? We see, I alluded to it earlier that. It's oftentimes recognition of our weakness that drives us to the power of God. It's recognition of how we're weak in this life that drives us to fall at the feet of God. Notice this woman would not have received the blessing of God unless she realized that she is powerless to obtain this specific blessing. The pregnancy of the Shunammite woman is supposed to be for us a picture of salvation. It is a work of God, a miracle of God. She had no chance, no chance of getting pregnant. But yet God, for God, I think it's impossible. And so remember, she was Gadol, and what this means is as she was not needing anything, God had to work in an area that she had no control over. Absolutely no control over it. And so what happens a lot of times when we feel like we are control in different areas of our life, when we um, rely on our intellect, maybe our income, our bank account, when we rely on our, our good parenting techniques or just the family that we come, that we come from, this oftentimes leads to independence from God. We can just go through life and we don't actually need God, but we only come to, to God whenever we, whenever we need Him. It's not your weaknesses a lot of times that keep us from God. It's our strength 
United States to Brussels and California. Isn't that true? Can you see that in your own life? What makes you run to God more spiritually? Is it when things are going good? When everything's smooth? Or is it whenever something's falling apart? And either your life or someone else's life that draws you, draws you, makes you press into the presence and word of God. This death of the child was able to draw the woman into, hey, I am drawn close to the man of God because I know you can fix it. What is it for your life? What is it for your life? Maybe you have a friend or a family that lives yet know Jesus. Are you pressing into Jesus for that? Maybe it's a health scare that you don't know the circumstances or the outcome of what it's going to be. Maybe it's an addiction that you can't overcome. Are you coming to Jesus for that? Maybe it's a depression that you just can't see to shake. Inevitably, this, these are the things that draws us into the presence of God. What separates you? What separates you? Um, it's not the death of your enemies, but typically it's the pride of your strength. So we need to press in. We need to press into Jesus whenever we see our weakness, because not always, not always, is our weaknesses a curse from God, sometimes they're a blessing. Because God knows, maybe, have you ever thought about this? Maybe whenever you're going through a tough time, maybe when things aren't going your way, when your kids are starting to rebel, when they're you're not sure if you're going to have a job next month. Whenever these things start pressing in on, on your life, don't you realize that these are sometimes things that draw close to God. You see, this woman trusts God. She knows that this is completely out of her control. She knows that she cannot raise herself from the dead. So she presses into the man of God. She believes deeply in his grace. She sees how gracious the man of God is to do something for her that she cannot do. So she goes to him again. And she won't let go. And she won't let go. It leads into my final point. The woman recognized that she needed a trusted and true leader. She recognized that she needed someone, someone to intercede on behalf of God for herself. After her son died, she repeatedly asked, she was repeatedly asked, hey, is everything okay? How's your son doing? See how she responds. Verse 23 and verse 26, all is well. Is she delusional? Is she having a, a breakdown right here? I think God decided to, to allow this to be in, in Scripture because it shows us the truth of Christian faith. The truth of Christian faith. That whenever you are in Christ, you know that everything is going to be okay. You know the trumpet will sound one day, and we will all go home to meet with Jesus, those that have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But you also know that all of you, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take part by the world from the world. And so, what we see is we see this mixture of contentment in her identity with the mediator. And her discontentment of what's going on in the world. So she says, All is well with my soul, and all is well in my world. I wonder, I wonder where 
content, hopefully in Christ. And if you are content in Christ, where are you discontent in the world? Maybe for some of you it's a, a child that was yet by Jesus. Maybe for some of you it's a neighbor. Maybe for some of you you just want to have a greater impact for the kingdom whenever you're working. Maybe for some of you you want to be a better mom or a better dad. Um, and, and lead your family in gospel centrality. And so where are you discontent? Where are you asking God to work? Because here's the thing. Sometimes the gospel is only appropriated in our life through persistent pleading with Jesus. Persistent pleading. Notice that she claimed, she clung to, to, to Elisha. She would not let him go. She says, I don't care what you say to Gehazi. I'm sticking with you. I don't care what else you are doing. I know you're the one who blessed me. I'm, so I'm going to stick and stay close to you. Wherever you go, I go. That reminds you of any New Testament story? Reminds you of any New Testament story? Luke, Luke 18, right? Luke 18. Um, Jesus is telling a parable of what prayer is like. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this. He says there was an unjust judge and there was a forgotten lonely widow. And this lonely widow was asking for justice about this small little case. And the unjust judge who didn't care anything about her or didn't care anything about justice gave her what she wanted because of her continual and, and then Jesus says something that's completely remarkable. He says, that's what prayer is like. Prayer is like you coming day in and day out. Day in and day out. God, you remember, Lord, please, all is not well with my world. Please transform and please change this. And look, this isn't Jesus saying that God is like a grumpy, unjust judge. He's contrasting them. He says, of course God, that you come to him continually. Whenever you come to him continually, He's going to say, what is the heart of my children? What is the heart of my children? And I, and I will work, and I will work with you. And sometimes I'll say no, but other times I'll press in whenever you draw closer and closer to me. And so my question oftentimes is, well, why doesn't God choose this in person? Right? Why doesn't God, why doesn't God answer our prayers in person? Why do we have to be persistent? Well, I don't know.
are things going on in my world. There are things going on in this city. There are things going on in my family. That I'm going to come to you today. I'm going to come to you tomorrow. And I'm going to cling on to you continually until you enter my prayer. And notice that she has tremendous confidence. She has tremendous confidence that the man of God is going to come through. And I wonder if we have the same confidence in Jesus. I wonder if we have the same confidence in Jesus. Because here's the thing that we see in this passage, especially towards the end, is we see that Elisha, how does he raise him from the dead? He says eventually he stretches himself out on the child. Weird picture, right? <coughs> that he puts his eyes on his eyes. Nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hands to hands. Where if you could imagine this or picture this, looking down to heaven, God would not see the child anymore. She would just see Elisha. And so in the same way, this is supposed to be a picture. A picture that Jesus covered us. He covered us over our sin. He covered us completely identified. Completely identified himself with us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we don't just get all of our sins erased, but we also get his righteousness. We have a better and truer mediator than this little boy and this woman had. We have a truer and better mediator because Jesus didn't just raise us from the dead. He raised us forever and ever to be with him in glory. He took on all of our sin in our place. He was the only one that could warm our hearts. And this is what we see from this passage. And so, I wonder, wonder, as you reflect on your own heart, do you see where you're weak? Do you see where you need Jesus and only Jesus can come here in your life? Are you going to him? He's a truer, better leader. He, he, he's better than Elijah ever, ever was. He's not only. See, Elijah only leaves after this. Jesus says it's better for you if you trust in the Holy Spirit. We can press into him day in and day out. We can press into him in the brokenness of our world. We have a truer and better mediator. We should use him as the people of God. So I want us to pray. I want us to pray as the, as the man begins to make the way back up. I don't know how this looks in your life. I don't know how this lands on you. I don't know where you're 